Let's turn again to the Old Testament and to the book of Ruth, which we're going through on Sunday mornings, uh, page 268 in our church Bibles. And we'll read from chapter 1 from verse 19 and reading on into the first few verses of chapter 2. The book of Ruth and We remind ourselves this is the word of God that we are reading. The Bible was written by people over many centuries from different countries in different languages, but behind it all, and this is so important, is the hand of God who himself has given us everything we have in the Bible. Ruth chapter 1, verse 19. Naomi and Ruth. So the two of them went on, until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Last week, we saw Naomi telling the women of Bethlehem, My name is not Naomi anymore. My name is Mara. I'm a bitter woman. My life is empty. My life is at rock bottom. Don't call me Naomi, which means sweet and pleasant. Call me Mara. But we saw a bit more than that. We saw that in the very last verse of chapter 1, there's a little upturn in the graph. Sometimes you look at these financial graphs and you see the, the FTSE 100, whatever it is, falling, 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 then a little upturn, whatever it might be, on one day. It's about to uh, go up again. And, uh, well, Ruth's stock is rising, shall we say. And so is Naomi's stock rising as we come to chapter 2. Because they have returned to Bethlehem, the house of bread, at the beginning of the barley harvest. And from now on in, the whole trajectory 
the whole progress of this book of Ruth is going up and up and positive and higher and better as we go through this narrative with the odd little twist and turn here and there to keep the suspense of the reader uh, alert. We've met Naomi. We've met Ruth. And today we meet for the first time the third great character of this book of Ruth whose name is Boaz. But I want us this morning to think behind Naomi, behind Ruth, behind Boaz, to the even greater character who is at the centre of the book of Ruth. And at the centre of every book and every story and every narrative and every life, including yours and mine. And that is the Lord God himself. I want to ask a question this morning. What is the will of God? What is God's will? How does God work? What is God's plan? Because that is the great message which lies behind the book of Ruth. One of the most important verses in the whole Bible, which is well worth learning, is Deuteronomy 29, 29. If you want a list of verses to memorize, here's one of the top ten, maybe. Deuteronomy 29, 29. What does it say? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What does that verse tell us? There is a secret will of God. There is a hidden will of God. There are things that God has planned and willed that must happen that we don't see. But there is also a revealed will of God, a will of God that he has made known that we can see and read in his word and carry out. And we've got to hold these two things together, especially in today's passage. So today I want to think, first of all, about God's secret will. And then secondly, about God's revealed will. And then thirdly, how they all come together. In Ruth's life, and in your life, and mine. So first of all, we think about God's secret will. And we come to verse 1 of chapter 2, where we read the words of the narrator. The narrator of this book. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, who's writing here? Not Naomi, not Ruth, not Boaz, but the unknown narrator of this story. And he wants to tell us, he wants to tell you and me, the readers, about this guy called Boaz. At this stage, you see, at this stage of the story, Ruth knows nothing about Boaz. If you said to Ruth at this point in her life, tell me about Boaz, 
she would blink and say, who's Boaz? Never heard of him. Don't know the geezer. Okay? Don't know a man called Boaz. We are looking, you see, at Ruth's life in this chapter from the perspective of Ruth herself. And she knows nothing about Boaz at this point. But the narrator tells us that there is this man called Boaz lurking in the background. And we are led to think that maybe, just maybe, just possibly, he could play a significant part in the unfolding story of Ruth and Naomi. And let's take a little look at him. As he's described to us in chapter 2 and verse 1, who is he? He's a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and he is a worthy man of his clan. Now that sounds full of potential, does it not? When you think through everything that's happened so far, what's been missing from the narrative so far basically is strong men. They've all died, if they were strong to begin with. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, has died. Marlon and Chilion, the two sons who don't seem to have been strong men at all, they're gone. There has been a gaping void in the narrative so far. There's been no strong, worthy man. But here is somebody waiting in God's own wings, as it were, backstage who sounds like he might just fit the bill. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And Boaz, at this stage, is one of those secret things that God has, as it were, up his own divine sleeve, ready to unveil at the right time. God's secret will is secret to everybody except himself. And to himself, God's own secret will is known perfectly. Have you got that? None of us have a clue about God's secret will, because it's secret. It's part of the divine plan. We can't access it. It's beyond our ability. But God knows it all, down to every last detail. And that should be a great comfort for us. It really should. God knows the future. God knows your future. God knows how the decade of the 2020s is going to work out in the world and in your life. God knows the Boazes or the Ruths that he may bring into your life over the years ahead that is lining up for you now, for whatever reason that might be. Question 7 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the catechism that we as a church subscribe to, the elders do so, it asks this question, what are the decrees of God? What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God are his eternal plan according to the purpose of his will, by which for his own glory he has foreordained whatever comes to pass. Whatever comes to pass is known by God. That's his secret and hidden will. He's had Boaz 
lined up throughout the story, long before Naomi and Ruth began to make the journey from Moab back to Bethlehem. The Lord God has in his secret and hidden will the happy ending to this story. And you know where it's going in the end, don't you, with Boaz and Ruth? And it's all been worked out from before both of those two people were born. Long before Boaz or Ruth were little twinkles in their parents' eyes, the Lord knew that he would bring them together at this point in time and space. God has worked out the entirety of human history with your life and mine intertwined within it and every detail of them. Why? For his own perfect, wise, good purposes. His purposes of love and grace and kindness and that he might get all the praise from all the creatures that he has made. Boaz is there. Boaz is the hidden will of God. Boaz is part of that secret will of God. Remember that. There are things in your life, friends, yet to be revealed that are hidden and secret from your eyes and your mind and mine that God in his great love and goodness is going to bring into your life at the time of his choosing as yet hidden. He's such a great God, you see. But Ruth's purposes immediately are not with God's secret will. No, and neither are ours, but rather with his revealed will. We come now to verse 2 and to God's revealed will. And Ruth the Moabite says here to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she, Naomi, said to her, to Ruth, Go, my daughter. Now let's take a look at Ruth and her actions for a moment. We get the distinct impression that she doesn't hang around long once she arrives in Bethlehem. I think the very next day, she's up and she's out and she's busy. Maybe she's heard Naomi saying to the women of the town how bitter she is, how empty she is. And Ruth says, very well then, I won't sit on my hands doing nothing. I'll get up, I'll get going. I'll be out into those fields as soon as I can be. Now, what does this have to do with God's revealed will? That's the question. Well, what does God's revealed will mean? God's revealed will is his word. How do we know what God wants us to do? How do you and I find out what God wants us to do? Number one answer, above all other answers, is we need to know what his word says. We need to know and understand and put his word into practice. That's how it begins. We don't simply wait for some mystical idea to come into our minds. That's not, that's not the first step for guidance at all. No, the first step of guidance is 
What does the word of God actually say? And I think Ruth probably knew that it says this in Exodus 20 verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Ruth knows enough of God's revealed will to understand that work is good. Work is right. Work is beneficial. It is God's revealed will that people should work. At the beginning we read in Genesis 2 verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And quite abruptly, the Apostle Paul says in second letter to Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 10, he says, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. Work is given for us to do. It is the revealed will of God that we should be about work, useful work in this world. But how will Ruth work? She hasn't got a work permit. She's a young woman, a young widowed woman, a young widowed foreign woman. She's in the land of Israel with no rights and no inheritance and no male relative in that country. What will she do? She can't go down to the local job center. She can't sign up with a temping agency. She can't Google her skills and find some vacancy somewhere in Bethlehem. It didn't work like that in those days. So what does she do? Well, she does what she can do, and she goes to glean in the fields. Now, here's one of these words that perhaps some of us don't quite know what it means. We may have been brought up uh, hearing that Ruth the Moabitess went to glean in the fields. What does it mean to glean? Is it a bit like cleaning with a guh rather than a cuh? Well, not quite. Not quite. We're not far away from there. What does it mean to glean? Well, to glean is to go round the field of barley after the reapers, the harvesters, have done their job of harvesting and picking up whatever scraps of food and crops were left when the harvesters had finished their job. Ruth did this. Gleaning was not hired employment. Gleaning was nothing honorable in the eyes of most people. Gleaning was something that only the poor and destitute in society did. But we come back again to the revealed will of God. Because the Lord in his revealed will in his word had instructed his people to make sure that the poor and the destitute were free to glean in the fields. Leviticus, one of the books of the law, a book full of laws that God gave to his ancient people. Chapter 19 verses 9 and 10 says this. When you, the people of Israel, reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings, the leftovers, after your harvest. 
and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Why not? Well, the Lord goes on. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. Sojourner means the the traveler who's coming through, who has perhaps no home of his own, who needs some food. You shall leave these gleanings for the poor and for the sojourner. And then says the Lord, this is very important, I am the Lord your God. In fact, as you read the book of Leviticus, which many Christians, I say understandably, but rather sadly, regard as a very difficult, barren, gray, hard, dry book of the Bible. If you read Philip Eveson's commentary on it, there's one thing you can do to see it's anything but barren and dry. It's full of meaning for Christians, by the way. But it is a book where... In so many places, you read a law, a regulation, a rule, and then you read words exactly like these. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord. I'm telling you what you need to be doing because I am your God. Because at the very heart of Israel's laws, and Ruth was beginning to see this, you understand, there was a great principle about land ownership. And it's this. The Lord had said to his people, Leviticus 25, verse 23, the land is mine. The land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. The land belongs to me, the Lord. It's not your land. It's not yours absolutely. You've been given the land, Israelites, as it were on a leasehold basis, not on a freehold basis. You have no absolute rights over the land. It belongs to the Lord, who is the lawmaker. He is the landowner and the lawmaker. You see, there was in Israel three, even nearly 4,000 years ago, what we might call God's own welfare state. There was provision made for the poor and the destitute if they were willing to come. And to glean in the fields, they would find that food was left there for them. And we can see that Ruth understands this. She knows enough of God's word to know what to do. Straight away she says that morning, let me go to the field. Let me glean among the ears of grain. Look at her words in verse 2. After him in whose sight I shall find favor. After him in whose sight I shall find favor. What does she mean by that? Does she know about Boaz? No, no, that's not what she means. She's rather saying this. If I obey the revealed will of God, if I take his word seriously... If I understand that there is provision made in the law of God to leave the gleanings of the field behind after the harvest. If I go to these fields, I may happen upon a field belonging to a landowner who will be faithful to God's word and in whose eyes I will find favor. Who will allow me to glean, who will not stop me and prevent me from gleaning the leftover barley after the harvest. 
Can you see already how exemplary a person Ruth is? She's faithful to God. She says, God's given me six days to work. He's revealed that in his word. So I will work. There's a harvest going on right now. In God's timing, I can obey his revealed will and go there and I will find pickings for me. After the reapers have done their job, I can take grain home for me and for Naomi to eat. We've come back to Bethlehem empty, yes. But in the good providence of God, I and my mother-in-law may soon be filled. And that theme is going to be getting bigger and bigger as this chapter continues. The hidden will of God. It's all about Boaz being there in the background. But Ruth knows nothing about Boaz. But she does know the revealed will of God. To go and work. To obey God. To keep his word. And her obedience and her faithfulness will soon be rewarded. We come finally to verse 3 and see how it all comes together. How it all comes together. So Ruth set out. And went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And I love this word, happened. She happened to arrive at that particular field. The authorized version of the Bible, the 1611 English Bible puts it like this. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz. Her hap. And you think to yourself, hap, is that a word? Well, it used to be a word. Perhaps still is in some circles. It's a medieval Middle English word. What does it mean? means luck, chance, fortune, accident, we might say. But it survives, in other words we use. Don't we say, perhaps. Don't we say, somebody had a mishap, a bit of ill fortune. Don't we talk about hapless Mr. Bean, for example, has a rather hapless time of things, or even haphazard, as well as something happening. And we say that we are happy, that things have fallen out well for us. We are in a happy situation. Our hap is a good hap, as luck would have it, we sometimes say. Because, you see, from our perspective... Not knowing the secret will of God, because we can't know it. From Ruth's perspective, not knowing the secret will of God, because she can't know it, things do happen. We have a hap in life. They turn out in a certain way. We might say today, uh, they, they were good circumstances for her. It all just happened to be right for her. Sinclair Ferguson, preaching on this passage in Ruth a number of years ago, spoke about uh, Ruth's 
happenstances. Some of you were there uh, at Aberystwyth in 1996 when he used those words. It would have seemed to Ruth like a chance, a random, accidental, arbitrary outcome. Very lucky for her. It was a happenstance. But what can we take away from this this morning? I nearly wrote down as the title for today's sermon and then thought better of it. But I was going to write it down as one add two equals three. And the point is this. If you put verse one and verse two together, you get verse three. If you combine the secret hidden will of God with our obedience to his revealed will in his word, then happenings will result, happenstances, outcomes, and good ones. Think about it. The Lord's secret will is there. It's there in the background. Can't be perceived by Ruth. But behind the stage, as it were, waiting in the wings, is a ready-made Boaz. With all that this man is, as a worthy man of the clan of Ruth's own deceased husband and his father. He's there. He's, uh, he's microwave ready, as somebody said a few weeks ago about something a bit different. Oven ready. But then we have Ruth's own obedience to the revealed will of God. That she's willing to go to the place where God has openly told her it would be good for her to go. And she trusts in God's provision. She says, I may not know God's hidden will, but I know his revealed will. I will follow his revealed will, and I will let his hidden will work out in my life. And that is biblical wisdom. That is wisdom for guidance. We can't ever fathom God's secret will. We can't say... When we're children, I don't know, of the age of about 12, well, maybe I can find out at the age of 12 the name of my future husband or wife by, by praying about it or where I'll be living in 20 years' time or what the name of my grandchildren will be. We can't know those sorts of things. God knows those things. Our business is to know what God actually says to us and do those things, trusting that his hidden purposes will work out in his own time. We trust and obey. We trust that God is all good and all wise and all powerful, that he has indeed for his own glory foreordained, chosen whatever comes to pass, though it's hidden from our knowledge. And then we obey what God has told us in the Bible. Hebrews 11 tells us that great roll call of the men and women of faith, that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. I wonder sometimes if Hebrews 11 had gone on a bit longer, if the writer had said, actually, I will carry on and tell you more about these people that I haven't got time to mention. You remember the Baraks and the Jephthahs and the Gideons and the Samsons and the ones at the end 
He might have actually gone on to say, by faith, Ruth. Not knowing who would be there waiting for her, went in faith to a field to glean. And by faith, (laughs) Boaz happened to be there. Now, I have to be very careful. I have no authority to say what the Bible might have said, right? But I'm just imagining in the spirit of Hebrews 11 that Ruth is a prime example of by faith, isn't she? She knew what God could do and she went in obedience to God's command. You see, this picture of trusting the God who is wise, who knows what he's doing, though invisible to us, And then obeying the God who tells us what we need to do. This has so many applications in your life and mine. From the most mundane to the most spiritual. What do I mean? We trust that God has a purpose for every single day of our lives. So we obey by getting up. And going to work or going to school and doing everything to the best of our ability, being in the place where God wants us to be at the time he wants us to be there with the people he wants us to be with so that his purposes can come to fruition that day in your life and mine. We trust God and we obey God. We trust that God has plans to bless us and prosper us, and not to harm us. So we obey, don't we? Those of us particularly who are breadwinners, we obey by doing all we can, as Ruth did. She was the breadwinner that day. She did all she could to provide for herself and her loved ones. We trust, and we say, God, we believe, wants to prosper us. I don't mean Prosperity in the sense of overflowing fortunes and things like that. I mean that he gives us what we need each day and not what we might actually want. But we obey by doing all we can to provide for those we are responsible for. We trust that God has plans to bless this church and deal graciously with us. We trust that's his plan. So what do we do by obeying? We pray to our God. We come together and we pray and we ask him to do this. Knowing that God's secret will, known only to him, will be worked out as his people pray. Sometimes people ask the question, if God knows everything already, why bother praying? doesn't make sense. It's going to happen, isn't it? It's going to happen anyway. It's all been decreed. Why do we pray? The answer is that God's decree and God's plan is worked out through our prayers. As we pray and after we pray. And God's will includes the very desire to pray that we have. If God wants to richly bless this church and the ministry here with gospel blessings, he will certainly put into your heart and mine a desire to pray that that would be true. And when that happens, praise God, it's often the prelude to a season of blessing that he brings. We trust God wants to bless his people, so we obey by praying to him. 
and real-life happenstances then come to take place. We trust that God plans to save many souls here in Camberwell and beyond. We trust that that vision in Revelation 7 of a vast multitude that no one can number, of people from every tribe, every language, every nation, is a real, historically worked out vision of a future reality, that there will be that great crowd. We trust that. So what do we do to obey? We take the gospel to everyone. I don't mean that we just do it as a church or as an evangelist in Pete's case. We all do it, and every believer and every church does it. We know that there is a multitude redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we obey by telling people the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through that gospel message, souls are one and saved. It's as we go in the strength of the Lord that the Lord's strength is worked out in us and through us for our good and for his glory. And the Boazes that God has lined up, whatever form that Boaz may assume in your life or the life of this church, they will be revealed as we respond to the revealed will of God, as we ourselves trust and obey. No prizes for guessing what we're about to sing as our last hymn in a moment, but let's come in prayer to God. O Lord God, in your majesty and wisdom, knowledge and power, we come before you now and thank you that these few verses remind us and tell us that this great event by which Boaz was the man who happened to own the field where Ruth happened to go, it would not have come about had it not been that Boaz was already there as a mighty man that you had prepared beforehand. It would not have come about if Ruth had not decided that very morning to go and glean in the fields after one in whose sight she might find favor. Our Father, we see most happily your secret will and your revealed will being married together in this event. And we thank you, Lord, that this which is true of Ruth and Boaz is true for your people here now. That we are not here by accident. That the people sitting around us are not accidental strangers, as it were, of whom we have nothing to do with. But rather everything and everyone and every time and every season and every conversation and every event is part of that wise, rich tapestry of events that before time began, O Lord, you weaved into existence to bring into fruition and reality at the time of your choosing. Lord, stir all our hearts by faith today to be as Ruth was, 
to say every Monday morning, as well as every Sunday morning, this is the day that the Lord has given me. This is the day when some purpose of God, as yet unknown to me, will be, uh, will be brought to bear. Therefore, I will go to the right place where I should go, where the Lord has told me to go, where I am meant to be. And there, O oh Lord, you will bring about what you purpose in your own good time. Thank you that we can come here. O oh Lord, this is a harvest field, as we thought last week. Here we have a house of bread, a Bethlehem, where the bread on offer is none other than the living bread, Jesus Christ himself, which if a man feeds on him, or a woman feeds on him, or a boy or girl feeds on him, they will live forever, and never faint, and never grow hungry, and never be empty again. O oh Lord, we thank you that we can be filled to fullness and satisfaction as we feed on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So, Lord, remind us and stir our hearts day by day with all that we've thought about today. Be with us, we ask in our Savior's name. Amen. I hadn't 